0: Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for this time in your word. We're grateful for thinking about things that we may have neglected or uh, not considered. We'd ask that you would uh, help us through it. Also, um, be with uh, Jessica and Sean as they try to resolve this car accident thing. In your son's name, amen. Well, as you can tell from the title, Christian Motivations is our, which which is really not descriptive. Um, It's almost too accurate because we're looking at what motivates a Christian to do whatever a Christian does. Now, it's not the way people normally talk about the deeds of a Christian, or what a a Christian is supposed to not be a hearer only, but a doer. We know that we're supposed to be obedient. We know we're supposed to be moved by the Spirit. We know that all sorts of things. We talk about, you might say, on the same subject on a different axis. The reason I wanted to include it this way is so that you would think about it on a different axis uh, of uh, consideration, and you would be given a tool by which you could categorize your motivations. Because, frankly, when we do wrong, when we do sin, we have motivations that sometimes we don't understand, why in the world did I do that? Why did I allow myself to get into that kind of trouble? Or we do something right and we can't even we can't even, uh, you might say, uh, what's the word, uh, It's not smelting. What do you do when you clarify something? Um, uh, Refine it. Thank you. Refine the idea in our heads. Why we even did... We just just sort of bump through life like it's a pinball machine. You know, we, we have this one flipper that says salvation and the other flipper says how good your church is and you just get knocked around through life and you hope you do more good points than bad points and you're ball doesn't go down the gutter. I don't think that's good enough. I have here on the right-hand side, in the top column, a verse which does not seem like an introductory verse. But I'm going to read it. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. <coughs> Often the reason people do not know what they are about is because they're primarily about habits. Habits are unthought. They're just the way you do things. You have a habit that you like to call your temperament. You have a habit you call your, philo- your personality. You have habits of, of um, particular temptations. You have habits of particular uh, pieties, uh, um, those sorts of things. And the broader substance of the verse of going to church, you know, here it is, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. I'm really concerned about the phrase, as is the habit of some. The word habit, and I've given it to you there in the Greek, is ethos. We run across it a lot, ethos. The, the custom. Um, what's the other one? Disposition. Um, we create customs. And too often we don't think about what we did to create these customs. And when the writer of Hebrews tells you, don't have this habit, but all, you know, all the more as you see the day drawing near, gathering together and encouraging one another, um, that's the kind of habit you should have. Um, it struck my mind that, that that this is a consideration that we might want, want to follow. Now, the nature of your the nature of a, your spiritual nature—that's a little redundant. The nature of uh, your life, you, the habits of your life, you've built out of forces in this world that are. Uh, all we can describe them is they're inertial. In other words, they get you moving. They get you. The Newton's first law of motion: the body at rest remains at rest unless acted upon by an outside force. That's what you're. you're you wouldn't be doing anything if you did not have an inertial force come in, suggest to you, give you reason enough to do something. Good, bad, indifferent. You got to have a reason to do something. We don't have a reason. You've got to have a because I You've got to have a force exerted. Now, the forces, really generally, that exist for us are conceptual forces, ideas, and physical forces, passions, concepts and passions. Now, there may be some other things that I'm not thinking of, but those are, those are so big that they cover just about everything. They're not, it's not entirely everything, because sometimes those are things that are inside. Those are internal forces. Those are things, I, my passion, my urges get me to do something. And I, and I do follow a passion because I seek gratification for the, the, the wanting. Now, it may be a negative wanting. I want the pain to stop. Or I want the pleasure to increase. It's on that gradient of gratification. Cease being hurt. Increase being pleased. That's what moves pretty much everything in the United States. And probably the whole world. Concepts, what you're doing, what, what moves you, what is inertial about it is the seeking of a reason to do something. When your mother tells you to pick something up, and you're kind of... Th- and, and mothers or wives suggest, w- would you like to, no, the guys automatically tell their mother, no, I wouldn't like to, pick that up, you asked if I'd like to, I have no passion for the thing at all, it can remain there till doomsday for all I care, well she says, you're going to do it because I told you to do it, now she provides a reason, a concept. And then she can move back to passions. And I'll spank you if you don't, you know, if there's back and forth between the things we choose to do, we have to have these inertial causes. Passions, seeking gratification, or concepts, seeking reasons. Now, we also find out, and I just jotted these notes down on the side for your uh, uh, consideration at a later later date. the, uh, the internality of those two, they're your ideas and they're your passions, you do come to the point where you realize I cannot, everything that needs to be done, there are, there's going to be other causes for doing things than, than my passions or my own ideas. And at that point, authority steps in. Where I have deemed or someone has deemed my own passions and ideas insufficient to getting the job done, and authority comes in with its own reasons and its own passions. Whatever the authority is, it has its own causal force. And it, I, in a, if I seek an authority, I seek a submission to it. Um, it may be based I'll seek the, the authority because of reason, or I'll, I'll think, seek the authority because of passion, but I will find an authority, and the authority itself can move me when I need to be moved out of fear of punishment or a number of other things. So so authority sort of is a a second tier outside the self-cause. Now, I I, I state that so that you know, when we start to read through these passages, you're going to see this juxtaposition between the passions and the ideas is being pretty stark in the scriptures. I start with Proverbs one of my favorite verses. A tranquil mind gives life to the flesh, but passion makes the bones rot. Now, I, I, I don't want to exegete on that too much. You can go to town on those Proverbs, uh, but it's mostly thematic. We're looking at uh, two worlds created. Now, a lot of times, well, let's read some of these passages, Second Peter 3.3. 3. First of all, you must understand this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own passion. First Peter 2.11 Beloved, I beseech you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Go down to First Peter 1.10. Now it seems to come up a lot in the Peters. There's a lot of quotes out of the Peters tonight. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired about this salvation. They inquired what person or time was indicated by the Spirit of Christ within them when predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in things which have now been announced to you by those who preach the good news to you through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Therefore, gird up your minds be sober. Set your hope fully upon the grace that is coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. Now, you see in a number of these situations that the passions, it's not because, it's not like we're Manichees or some sort of Gnostic antagonism to the flesh it's not so much that it's the flesh, it's that it's the passions. Okay? The, the, if I'm conformed to these false teachers, the scoffers following their passions, the the passions of the flesh that wage war on my soul, Um, it's not because, well, you're starting to say very early on in the discussion, didn't God make all those? You know, didn't he make women pretty early? you know uh, in the lineup well, no, she wasn't the first we realize and sure she was high maintenance but sure she destroyed the moral fiber of the world but still god made her and made us like them and food to taste good and all sorts of other things that are enjoyable that we're, we're not talking just about the presence of passion or the presence of the flesh we're talking about this idea of it as a motivator That it's deciding. They follow their passions. Now, it says there in this passage we're just looking at, there's a juxtaposition. Gird up your minds, be sober. That's what you're told to do. Don't be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. That's, (coughs) you might say, the, the back and forth. And again, it's not because we're arguing that somehow the passions of the flesh are verboten. We're not Saint Augustine here. We're not, you know, we don't have uh, sort of a, uh, a Victorian Christian ickiness running away from food, wine, cigars, good-looking women, and uh, fast cars. Um, we're looking at how the Christian structures his decisions. How does he structure his deeds and life? He does so by girding up his minds. I think I've mentioned this enough times in the company of uh, Christians I know that you probably have heard me say it before. This is girding up your minds. It's tying up all the loose ends. And you do so soberly. The reason is is because there's this wonderful message that has come and been preached to us, been announced to you back in verse uh, 12. Things that are so valuable angels wanted to look into these things and and um, You've been, you've been told them. And if you invoke his Father, him who judges each one impartially according to his deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, you know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we have this basic, the, the, the Christian message is letting you know that the concept, the idea, the message, the believed claim is this great thing that has come into the world that takes you away from former ignorance that when you're ignorant, when you don't know, um, and you've probably run into this countless times with people you know, when someone is pushed up against the wall in an argument and cannot think of why they hold their position, they just do, really strongly. They don't become meek and mild and submissive and go, yes, you're right. They will lose their temper. They'll become uh, loud and insistent. They'll become passionate. Because what's the old phrase? Argument weak, shout here. That's the... Uh, that's how you um, uh, uh, move. People who do not have reasons in life will get inertia in life from their passions. Now, just because they don't have reasons doesn't mean they've got good reasons. It doesn't mean that all reasons are good reasons. All reasons are not good reasons. But reasons are different than passions. And we are initially told to take consideration about your minds. Gird them up. And do not be ignorant and passionate. So this, i make this little note, this concept makes for the divine ethos. Uh, 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Oh, that's our big question, right? I want to know what motivations carry me through to all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which this knowledge of him he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. The very thing we're looking at is the Christian ethos. What are we? How do we get there? What's this habit, this custom that I inadvertently designed one from growing up in the western United States or, or being in the Navy at a certain point, or whatever it was, I pieced together osmotically, pulling in motivators, pulling in valuations, uh, making decisions that I wasn't thinking about, and he's telling me now I should, I've been given this path by which I can, in the knowledge of God, and the promises given to me, I may escape the corruption that's in the world because of passion. Because if we don't, Ephesians 2.1 And you he made alive when you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now work, at work in the sons of disobedience. Among these we all once lived in the passions of our flesh following the desires of body and mind and so we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the basic problem of humanity. You might want to call it depravity if you want, but it's, the depravity is, you might say, gets lost in the muddle of theology at that point. And you say, yeah, it's because of the passions of our flesh, the desires of body and mind. It's not just body. You know, there's, because our minds, and you can read this in any textbook in psych, or any liberal theological textbook, people design thoughts to match the passions. Yeah, you know, nobody really feels comfortable having a life that is designed by their mindless animalistic urge. That they don't have something to make them feel more humane about it. That it's somehow more right for us to kill our unborn children because a woman has a right to. Well, what, well, I just why not just say I just want to kill the kid. you're doing it because of you got you got you know preggers because you're passionate. And you want to you get, with the, get rid of the kid because you're passionate. Why not just say, I don't want the kid? They, it's legal to kill it. Well, because nobody feels very humane. And I don't mean in the sense of merciful, I mean in the sense of being, I'm operating really like a, a, like a lion that'll eat one of the cubs just because, you know. Um, uh, that's just, you know, what's wrong, isn't it? Well, people like coming up with a mind and desires of the mind, or they even farm their minds to create um, a greater, um, you might say, uh, uh, infrastructure of passion. You can't uh, drive through L.A. without saying, this city is the infrastructure, of, well, maybe Vegas would be better, the infrastructure of passion. They, they've designed this place for passion. They have made it. Um, what was I think Ali was talking, I've never been to the casinos, and... In Las Vegas, but one faithful parishioner has, and uh, I believe it was you who told me that the sidewalks are on the same level with the first floor. You, there's no barrier. There's no, it's just like the current will take you in. There was, there's no abutment, no speed bump, no point of consideration. You just, you're in. Suddenly, you're in the casino and gambling. James three who is wise and understanding among you. By his good life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. I want to recommend it after you get a chance to think on these things afterwards, to take this idea of passions and concepts and start looking at the things that we know are wicked. And a lot of them are ideas here. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are ideas. They're not they're not straight up urges. You know, there are urges like food and sex, but this, these are more involved with who you are and who they are and why don't you have that car and, and uh, why couldn't you get that car that you want because he has it and you want a better one than he does. or Bitter jeal- jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast to be false to the truth. This wisdom is not as such as comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there'll be disorder in every vile practice. Basically it's addressing two particular evil um, claims on our passionate self that have come to the point of an idea. And um, you've made conclusions, you've designed an ethos that allows you to be jealous. Selfishly and ambitious, um, or was it bitter, selfish, and jealousy, jealousy and selfish ambition. You've got to the point where that is your motivator in life. And James is just telling you that you will have every vile practice. That's why we get churches that end up in such a train wreck, because you have people in the church who operate. I was talking to a guy Sunday who was visiting our church. And uh, he was admitting that he had been part of a problem like that in another church where he said that just our, our crazed stupidity, we, we drove this church into the ground. You know, we, we people create disorder in every vile practice if they're moved, not by concepts, but by passions. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, without uncertainty or insincerity. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, I included that passage because it was right before the passage that really interested me, but it laid out, you might say this, it was sort of an example of what God was trying to produce in us in wisdom, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, that you don't really want to meet somebody who is passionately, or you might say they're, when somebody is gentle passionately, they're probably really icky to be around. Now, I'm just saying, just saying, maybe there are these China doll types or something like that, but versus someone who is gentle because they're strong enough to be gentle. In other words, they are, they, they care for frail things. Because they are capable to care for frail things, not because gentle doesn't mean they're frail. It means that they care for it. Could, they could be a, a a soft woman or a hard man, but if they care for gentle th- or for frail things, they're gentle in their uh, um, in their action, open to reason. These are ideas that you're trying to say. Okay, so the concepts, the sober mind that I'm supposed to have. The the girded up mind, I'm supposed to address issues like peace and purity and open to somebody else's argument, mercy, good fruits. But what I really wanted to get to was chapter 4:1. this next paragraph. What causes wars? What causes fighting among you? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members? You desire and you do not have, so you kill. And you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Unfaithful creatures, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So this is coming on the heels of that bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, every vile practice. That's what it's creating. And that's, now he's talking about the principle. Now when people jump into James 4 and have it be some talk about the nature of war in society. Well, okay, you could apply it to that, but he's talking more about personal relationships, not political theory. This is not James writing something that would only count if you work for Caesar. <coughs> no, this is something that says this is friendship with the world. The world functions this way. You want things So you kill. You covet things and you don't get it. So you have bitter jealousy. You don't even ask. If you ask, you got the wrong motivation because you just want to spend it on fulfilling your passionate gratification. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is in vain? that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. So this, I want you to think of these two two worlds juxtaposed, asking you're either going to serve passions, concretely, I know it, I'm Hugh Hefner, I'm going to be bad and I want to have an organized badness, or I'm going to serve the living God. But most people wander around, like I said, in a pinball machine of motivations. And they never consider thinking about categorizing motivations, categorizing them potentially in a biblical way. God says, I'm jealous over the spirit I made to dwell in you. That means that I've designed my spirit, my nature, my habit, my ethos, to not be with him. He and I, my ethos and God, are not dating any longer. But he wants to be dating my ethos. He wants to be formative to myself. And the answer is, verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you men of double mind. Now it's letting you know that you've got this task laid before you that requires concrete, um, not just an assessment, but I have to I've got to um, actually turn the knobs. It's like being shown in your basement. I'm a homeowner and I have been to my boiler room a few times, and there's some dark arcana working down there. It's the size of a locomotive, and there's uh, knobs, and there's, mm, there. Are, what are those called, gauges, going, you know, how much pressure in, in the boiler. And every so often you have to go down there and flip some switches and turn some knobs. You know, I, I was told by the plumber from McCoy Plumbing and E. And so I do that on occasion. and. Um, but if t- things were going wrong, or if there's a water leak somewhere in the house, I know where the valve for the main water main coming into the house is. So I can go turn it off. So no more water comes into the house. But if I never feel that any situation is there for the urgency of that knowledge to be applied, if I never submit myself to it, resist the temptation to not turn it off and just watch water flow out the front door. Um, I'm not really about fixing this problem of every disorder and every vile practice in my life. If I I find out that this really is where the chess pieces are put on the board, this really is how the scriptures align your thoughts about decision-making, action, activity, integrity would require movement of you. Let's move on. I don't want to dwell on certain things too much. One of the first things you consider is in the concept of God. Now, in our first Bible study on the Sublime Vision, we were talking about our consideration of God. And we covered this passage. It comes up in so many different subjects. Um, But I, I just wanted to remind you there in verse 21 that although they knew God, they did not honor him or give as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. To be wise, they became fools. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, once again, if I don't hold the right concept in my head, with some kind of undouble-minded integrity. Remember you said that in James? Purify your hearts, you men of double mind. Quit being double-minded. Once you know that this is the idea, this is the God, you better honor him as God or give him thanks. Or the option is to become futile in your thinking and be given over, because if I'm futile in my thinking, and very quickly people realize that the thinking, if if they have a bad economic program in their home, and it really doesn't seem to be working, they're going to give up and just start spending on the credit card wherever whatever they feel like. They will do what feels good. They will run to wherever the pleasure is the loudest. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now, it goes on to talk about homosexuality. And, you know, in this day and age, when you talk about homosexuality, everybody says, oh, what do you hear about gay marriage? Well, that's not the question so much. Homosexuality, like all immorality, is the realization that there is no governor on the engine once you decide that you're running by passions. It's not God a means of stopping itself. You will just, you'll go till you're gratified. And some people take a lot more to be gratified. That's what and if you've been given over to your passion, God says, Okay, you will not honor me or give me thanks, okay. On your way now. Go out there into the street without any reason or or, or or mentality or anything that you could justify a life by. And yeah, you've still got your urges. Go ahead, live by those for a while. And they will end up circling the drain, going down them till they become dishonorable. Verse twenty nine. They were filled with all manner of wickedness. And it's not just gayness, it's evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity. They were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's almost poetic. It, there's, no, there's no stopping it. Once you decide, now admittedly we're not all some sort of, you know, slutty woman or rakish guy. We're not all Hugh Hefner. We're not all rock stars. We don't live in a state of complete drunkenness or drug-induced haze with um, uh, wickedness, uh, getting up every morning thinking of what wickedness to do. But it's because we don't even think about what we arranged in our lives. But things did come into our lives, like Christianity and churchfulness or good families or whatever else, that that promoted certain good ideas in your head, even if you didn't seek them. You were you were provided with a good idea somewhere along the line, because your manny told you that, you know, Lord helps those that helps themselves. Well, truism, okay. Um penny saved a penny earned. Also a truism, uh cleanliness is next to godliness, yeah, okay. Now, those three things, you could get up in the morning and live a pretty decent American life. Okay? None of it Bible, none of it the Word of God, but it, but it's, you know, true. It's stuff that will help you out. And we know that we're just sort of this accidental assemblage of causes in our life. We, but I want you to look at it with the great wickedness of greatly wicked people, so you say, oh, that, that part of my life, when I'm wicked, when I'm passionate, when I'm driven by those things, that's where it ends. That's where it goes. Be thankful for the good you have in your life, but I trust that you're trying to get better motivations about how to live. So you need to understand what the nature of the passion is. Now our faith in Christ, here in the Romans 6 passage, a great statement of what we have come to in Christ. Um, um, Verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Wonderful, wonderful truths about the gospel and its effect. Jump down to verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies, To make you obey their passions. Do not yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Now again, when we're talking about the issue of works and faith and grace and all those other things, we approach these passages with a different... Uh, markings on our mind, or a different way of analyzing it. It's there too. You can have a great discussion about the effect of grace in the Christian's life, and it's very much there, but I want you to think in terms of this yielding, this consideration, this the message of the gospel is is the power of God to save you from a life based on passion, and you don't allow it. Two things. You have the capability, earlier part of here in Romans 6, you have the capability uh, of verse 11, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's my got to be my consideration. That's my idea. Um, and I must not let, because it's still a choice. We have not become pious automatons. Uh, we are p- supposed to be pious, free-willed individuals that have been given the opportunity, given the command, and given the instruction. But to yield ourselves to God. I have to not just analyze this question. I have to, like it said back in in the uh, uh, James passage, submit, resist, draw near, cleanse, purify. Things to do, the the things I, I, I need to move myself forward with. Now, the Christian ethos, as we get to it, is so rooted in the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit working out his fruit in us. Titus 3.1 Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for any honest work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all men. You get a lust like that, you just want to go, you know, Choke the life out of Saint Paul, you know. Just (laughs) he makes it sound. It's one. It sounds so good, you know. Perfect courtesy. Avoid quarreling. Speak evil of no one. Gentle, obedient, honest, working. What a great person! You want to be this guy's friend, but you don't want to be this guy. You just want to be this guy's friend. Uh, and, And those lists are are nonstop in Saint Paul. We want to have the understanding of verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by men and hating one another. Now that's where we used to reside rather than that great list of good we, list, we resided in this, various passions and pleasures. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that we might be justified by his grace and become heirs in hope of eternal life. A great gospel passage of what's there in the gospel. He saved us, not because you did anything, but because he is merciful through the power of the Holy Spirit, the washing of the Holy Spirit. So, I realize that not only do I have to, you might say, present myself to this question. I have to say, okay, okay, Evan, I'm motivated. I get up in the morning and I do stuff. What is it I am willing to do? Am I going to go out and be pious and devout, devout all day? Or am I going to be some mixture? Or am I going to be rotten? Uh, well maybe I should consider what makes me rotten when I'm rotten and what makes me righteous well it's passions, serving those obeying those, the ignorance of those and the thoughtful Christian who who uh, considers all these things as being guides to the tranquil life, not the destructive um, make your life rot uh, idea and I begin to realize that I have to have this is one of those moments where we have to step outside ourselves because the unbeliever didn't have the grace, didn't have the mercy, didn't have the salvation, didn't get regenerated and renewed in the Holy Spirit. Because those things, and I have them on the side, the Galatians, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, another reason you want to choke the life out of St. Paul, it's so, it flows off the tongue, it's natural, it's holy, it's good. These are the things we are to actually not wait for some passionate epiphany from God, some St. Francis of the Sissy moment with Jesus and and, and the bunnies, that somehow I would suddenly feel like doing this enough. I'm, I'm told to pay attention to it. I'm supposed to study it and believe it and do it, be it. Because these are not doable things; these are all beable things. So we have to stop and say, "How how serious am I?" And I also know how serious am I in bowing before the salvation of Jesus Christ. Because without that grace, uh, you know, I might realize that that's the good path. And I can see down it all the way to heaven, but I can't walk it because, as St. Paul said in Romans 7, I want to do what is right, but I cannot do it. Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. If you're looking for a verse on the will of God, there it is. <laughs> that you abstain from unchastity, that each one of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust, like heathen who do not know God. Nice juxtaposition right there for you. Holiness, honor, not in the passion of lust. That no man transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we solemnly forewarned you. So I have to add in holiness and honor. These are things. Have I given it thought? Mm -hmm. Have I girded up my mind? Have I soberly considered these words that are floating out to me in these famous passages, I've read that Galatians 5 passage, I don't know how many times, do I have a personal working definition of every one of those words? What do I mean when I say self-control? What do I mean when I say kindness? What do I mean when I say peace? Do I mean anything? Or do I just like to hear those words go by because it strokes my passionate Christian feelings and i find churches that touch me passionately that whatever your passion is be it pew jumping to the you know a heavy backbeat and and you know speaking in tongues or you know high liturgy whatever the case makes you feel all i'm going to swim the tiber next month you know it's i i'm going I, i'm going by passion and and christians love this verse love those Concepts, but they don't don't have a working definition. Can you imagine going through life as a car mechanic and and you're telling the client, well, you know, I think that's a carburetor, and I really like the word carburetor. (laughs) Especially, I think the British say carburetor. And he says, well, what does it do? I have no idea. No idea, don't even know what's inside it. I just like saying the word. And if you come by next Friday, you could pay me $300 and I'll say it to you again. And do Christians, have they done any the integrity of the believer once they realize that this is a choice between being, you will be guided. You either will be told what to do by an authority you will have a passion for what to do good or bad, or you will have a reason for what to do good or bad, wise or foolish. That's it. Now look at your life. Now plot it out. Is this the Christian ethos that you are, is this something you would recommend to anyone? Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2. So shun youthful passions and aim at righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. It says This is, this is Christianity over here. This is the, the habit, the custom, that Christians are supposed to have. Have you designed that one? Jude 1, well, one chapter in Jude, verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own passions, foul mouthed boasters, flattering people to gain advantage. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who set up divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Pull those words out. Pull those phrases out and go building something up. Praying about it. Keeping myself in the love of God. Waiting patiently for the mercies of God. That goes all the way back to the uh, passage that um, when it tells us, "Gird up your minds, be sober, set your hope fully upon the grace that is coming to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ," you've got these tasks on you. What am I going to do? I'm going to. Um, what am I going to do? I'm going to do minister to myself, to edify myself. I'm going to have this kind of, um, this kind of task, this kind of task put on me. Look back at those, uh, in this Jude passage, These about these false teachers. Following their own ungodly passions, it is these who set up divisions. Worldly people devoid of the spirit. They, this is all inside the church. This is not just the heathen. This is not the pagan world. Sure, the pagan world operates by passion as well. But this is the danger for Christians who don't pick up the, with integrity this task. Romans 12, you know this passage. I appeal to you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your passions, that you may prove what... Oh, did I skip? I didn't. That was not right. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect well what a task that is you get transformed your life changes, your ethos changes that means your decisional point for the things you have to face in life becomes the Christian ethos and if it's renewed correctly, if I picked up truth when I did it it'll be a transformation to holiness and I'll be able to prove it's the will of God I'll be able to look to my family and my friends and go yeah this Christianity works People who witness you go, yeah, he's a peace, he's loving; he's kind. What is good, acceptable, and perfect? And as this is happening inside you, I have that little John passage off to the side, just to let you know that the apostles consider that the individual encounter with the Holy Spirit was something that taught you these things. But the anointing which you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, as His anointing teaches you about everything. is true and is no lie just as it has taught you abide in him because I don't want you when I said at the beginning when you deem your ability to decide about your life insufficient you turn to authority too many Christians turn to authority too quickly not the authority of God, that's understood God's smarter than you, God's more powerful God's God, Jesus Christ, etc. but they start Getting all their ideas and getting all their assertions and getting all their power of thought from someone else. It's handy to do. I I recommend it, but don't deem it necessary too soon because have you done, have you come to grips with it yourself first? Have you realized the anointing that you have from God teaches you everything? First Peter 4, 1 Peter 4.1 Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourself with the same thought, same thought for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer by human passions but by the will of God. So I've got a choice now. I'm still in the flesh still carrying this sack of enzymes around and um, I'm supposed to design it no, not, not by human passion but by the will of God. I was just told how I was going to get the will of God. I was going to renew my mind to be transformed in such a way that it will prove to me the will of God. That's, that's what I'm supposed to live the rest of my life doing. Now the Gentiles, let the time pass as suffice for doing what the Gentiles like to do living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, rebels, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you do not now join them in the same wild profligacy, and they abuse you, and if you ever get to use the word profligacy in a sentence, if you do so, it's a great word. But look at that, licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, rebels, carousing, lawless idolatry. It's profligate. And they look at you like, what kind of alien are you? They don't understand. When I was in the Navy, they didn't understand why are you not going out and getting drunk with us? Don't you understand that we enjoy lying face down in our own vomit? Don't you understand what fun that is? No, I didn't. But they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, the authority issue, this is, I wanted to lean heavily on this task you have of suiting up and addressing whether or not your life is moved by ideas that when you sin in some way, I want you to look back and go, okay, what idea promoted that, or was it passion? And if it was not, and what idea would God have me think instead of that passion that would have served to be better. Proverbs twenty nine, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, when the wicked rule, the people groan. Same chapter verse sixteen, when the wicked are in authority, transgression increases, but the righteous will look upon their downfall. I, I, I mentioned this as sort of that was just a sort of introductory, because we're faced with when we deal with authority, all authority is not good authority, like all thought is not good thought, all passion is not good passion, all passion is not bad passion. Same same is true with authority. I must, since the wicked being in charge is a bad thing, and the righteous being in charge is a good thing, we ought to say, okay, how do I one of my key thoughts is what do I do about God? How do I approach God's place in my life. We talked about that back in Romans. John uh, 7 here. Christ is speaking about his own submission to God. If any man's will is to do his will, he shall know whether the teaching is from God, or whether I am speaking on my own authority. John 8. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak thus. As the Father taught me, you go to the cross, and He says, or Gethsemane, and He says, "Not my will, but Thine be done." This idea, when I when I need an authority, it doesn't just oh, you know, some insecure female runs around and finds some brutal guy to marry because she needs an authority. She's not making a wise decision. You're still decisional, but you need to know that I'm seeking submission. That's what authority, that's the other end of the authority. When I find an authority, I am finding myself in the role of submission. And so I need to, with real confidence, be able to say with Christ, Not my will, but thine be done. So when a young lady marries a young man and she realizes she's marrying an authority, when you're a citizen of a country and you know you have authorities over you, all these things are settled out, parents and kids. You know what the what the drill is. You know that if there's an authority in place, there is an arena of submission that is guiding your life. So the degree we the degree we find we need authorities to that degree we have to be saying I'm finding submissions, not just authorities. I'm finding submissions. Christ did with God, and he uh, submitted to the cross, and then he takes over as the authority. Matthew 28. Uh, verse eighteen, and Jesus came and said to them, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." And then he gives the great commission: "Go therefore and make disciples of all nations." It's the last verse of Matthew. So you're gonna sort your life out. Gotta sort your life out. You gotta say, "Okay, passion." It uh, seems like it's a real cruel mistress, but it's all about pleasure and pain. It's all about enjoying stuff. And so you understand why temptations over there. And you got all these ideas that are not just ideas. You just say, "Oh no, they have to be correct ideas. And if I can't come up with correct ideas on my own, I better find an authority that can guide me to correct ideas. Because correctness matters. I need to be right. But when we go look at I don't know if you've ever been to a Christian bookstore, or you've ever been in a theological argument between Christians, but you know that there's a wide array of important names out there that think all sorts of different things from each other. And they don't seem to, uh, they seem to be taking as their life verse of the making of books, there is no end. That's what they seem to think, that another book on the subject of whatever this is, it would be just what Jesus Christ would like. I want you to remind you that when you look at the spiritual claims, because all these things are from God. I have a Bible here, and I'm claiming it's the word of God. But as soon as I do, I know that there are men, apostles, prophets, you know, who wrote those books. I have to say, okay, voice through man. And so when I go to the Christian bookstore and buy a book and on a p- particular subject, I I know that I'm risking, I'm stepping into that realm of authority Am I going to be designing my life by this authority? Authority alone is not a claim of benefit. Um, Matthew 15. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And then verse 6. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Jesus Christ said, um, some traditions, even religious ones, and these were religious ones, find that since they were not written by God, they don't agree with God in some key moment later on, and people tend to pick the tradition instead of the commandment. They, I don't know, like traditions better. Maybe they're more understanding of of man. Galatians, uh, When Paul's writing about this, uh, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. (coughs) Colossians 2 See to it that no one makes prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. That's the first hint that we go, oh, I'm at a deciding point here, authority-wise. I'm at a deciding point that says, okay, um, something according to Christ looks like it would be good. Human tradition, traditions of the fathers, your traditions of the elders, and eh, not so much. So, the difference between good and bad traditions, Few verses to strengthen that thing of and not according to Christ. 1 Corinthians twelve two. I mean eleven two. I commend you because you remember in me everything and ma- in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. Thessalonians. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word or mouth or by letter. Word of mouth or by letter. Second Thessalonians. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is living in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Now, when you talk to someone who's in a more traditional church, they will turn to the passages with the positive review of tradition. And when you have a radical Anabaptist church like Evans, you look at the passages that uh, Jesus kicking the tradition kind of flight of stairs. Um, and and really, it's, it's all true. It just means that I have this task of figuring out good and bad tradition. And the good and bad tradition seems to be, as I see it on these red letter, oh, handy to have red letters there, um, as I have delivered them to you, taught by us, you received from us. Paul's making a claim that the traditions that he laid out for the churches, they were valid and it was good to see people hold to them. That's what teach- teachers do in the Body. Now you say, we don't have apostles anymore. Then maybe you better learn by Paul what he said in Corinthians. Learn by us not to go beyond what is written. It's either by word of mouth or by letter. Those are your choices. And if you don't get to talk to an apostle, eh, he's got some letters written up in the Bible. And you can still read them. And they still have the traditions of the Christians, early Christians in it. Now, well, I don't want to foil my own, uh, foul my own nest. I'm a pastor and I, uh, and I do want people to listen to me uh, of a Sunday morning. So, what are we, uh, how does that fit into this ethos? I mean, what, what, well, as I cannot, in accordance with Christ, make pronouncements as if I were Christ, I cannot, with the authority of an apostle, say something of a Sunday morning, which is my own idea, you know, I could only say what the apostle or the prophet or the, or, or, or the Christ said, and tell you what they what it is, and that's where I would have authority, in as far as I was preaching authoritative things, not my own stuff. Um, you might say, well, what if, what if uh, you know what if Evan had an idea that was just kind of intriguing, and you know, it wasn't really biblical, but it was kind of intriguing. And I wanted to consider it. And, but is he nothing? Is he is he chopped liver? What is, what's what's this? Uh, what's this authorities or any authority? I want you to look um, first off, you need to take responsibility for this decision because you you will be held responsible for it. You are the one making the ethos. You are the one living it and you are the one that's going to be judged for it. So you might want to take it seriously. Um, your teachers need to be the example of the successful Christian ethos. That's why it says they got to raise their kids right. they got to hold their family in a in submission and in piety, uh, they can't take care of their own family. Why? How can they take care of God's? Because that we are so concerned about shaping this ethos, our Christian leaders should be successful shapers. I give you two passages about um, uh, leadership: Hebrews thirteen seven. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. So it's imitative, and you look at their life to see whether or not you should. Consider how it turned out for them. Do you want their marriage? <laughs> Do you want their kids? Do you want their you know, way of living? you want his temper problem? Well then, go ahead and knock yourself out. Imitate that faith. To the elders, it says in 1 Peter, tend the flock of God that is in your charge, not by constraint but willingly, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not as domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So on both ends, it tells you if you're a prisoner, look at your leaders as exemplars. If you're a leader, be an exemplar. Christianity has to be successful in some people. And it better be successful in your leaders. Now when you have that, God has given, Ephesians 4, And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Great, another great, you know, panegyric of the Christian life for St. Paul. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about but with every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men and by their craftiness and deceitful wiles rather speaking the truth in love. Look at how the right apostles, prophets, pastors teachers function. Speak truth in love. Because there are men out there who will speak other things as he says in Acts to lead disciples after themselves. So how do you tell because you're very easily, but you know, how easily would it easy for we for for it, would it be for you to end up in a church that all po- all orthodox and evangelical, but it was some guy who wanted to have his own following. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth, and it builds itself in love. <coughs> Now look at this, really the next passage that I was pulling this in because there's authority in your life but you, 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 have, you have the task on you and you should feel the task heavily but that doesn't mean you've got to go spend copious amount of hours with the pastor to get his ideas about everything. You should be spending copious amount of hours with yourself and the Holy Spirit being led in the Word of God into all things. And then, go ask a few questions if you need to. Now this I affirm and testify in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of uncleanness. We must no longer do that, basically don't do that anymore it's dark, it's futile, it's ignorant you did not so learn Christ it is not dark futile and ignorant if you want to just reverse it it did not base itself on your pleasures assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus so, then you have to say but have I heard Am I in the situation where I'm hearing what I need to hear? Have I been taught? Now, a lot of us are in believing churches and we hear it, stuff regularly. But were we taught? Were we taught the truth? Were we taught the truth in Christ? Put off your old nature. This comes back to this whole idea of the ethos. Now it's not the same word here. Nature is not ethos at this point. It's What it's I think it's Sarks or something like that. So we get sarcasm from it because of flesh or old. I'm not sure. I have to look it up. The old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful lust, but it's probably talking about the same thing. When I talk about constructing an ethos in your in your mind, in your being, you're talking about a custom, a habit. Okay. Deceitful lust had built your old nature. They belong to your former manner of life. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new nature. Boy, it doesn't get... I don't know about you, but once this thought crossed my mind, once it went, hold it, there is something here. There is this tension between passions as a motivator, as a motivator, not as existent, but as motivator, and concept is motivator and the Christian life is dominance to the concepts renewed in the spirit of your minds gird up your minds give a thought to things that God has taught you about truth and about these subject matters and put on the new nature this is how you're shaping the new nature Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now <clears throat> that sort of wraps it up. I mean, I, I got this last passage here. I want to uh, address it because when you when you when you rail against something like the passions, and I've mentioned this in passing throughout, God made them. You're supposed to enjoy them, but you say, well, "Where's the? You know, what's the? What am I supposed to do with them?" I mean. It's, it's, if they're not leading me, and that's what most people are are about, they're about being led in passions, Um, I am to take a sober, girded mind and decide by authoritative reasons the time for everything like that. I give you the Ecclesiastes, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And look at those. I've had the few things bolder. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. Verse 5, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. There's a time for those things. Now, the question for the mind-guided saint is he's not just waiting for the first signal to his passion to embrace is hit, But when it is the time you embrace, not when his passion, like it says in James, whence comes your wars and fightings among you, is it not your passions? Well, that's where those kind of wars come from. Your passions were tempted. But for the Christian, the task is not that you have war or sex or love or mourning or dancing. The question is, who's deciding what time it is? That's it. That's all you're doing. Who's in charge? Who's the timekeeper? For the Christian life. What gain has the worker from his toil? This is verse 9. I have seen the business that God has given to the sons of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Got that? So not only do I get passions in their time decided by my mind when they're beautiful, but the things that aren't passions become beautiful if I decide for them in their time. Also, he has put eternity to man's mind, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Also, that it is God's gift to man that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil. And I know whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has made it so in order that men should fear before him. It's a great promise saying that, hold it, yeah, we're not even backing away from passion, it's just that we learned something about passions. Passions were given, and I have this note at the bottom because it served me well. Let God and his truth be the verb in your sentence of life and you will find the passions he made will function well as the punctuation. That's what, I I know where passion belongs. It's the exclamation point. If I have the right kind of heart, I can be like Christ in the temple getting angry with the sellers of livestock. Angry. Jesus Christ was passionate. But he was angry over the right things because his verb, his understanding, the way he designed his ethos was in submission to that which was true in him, in his mind. And so he could count on, let's say, the punctuation of his life actions being, however intense it needed to be, it was the time to drive people out of the temple with whips which is a bit drastic, but he knew it was right. And we have to be able to say, I know, when I enter passions of life, when I have moments, when it says, be angry but do not sin, you've got to be so completed in your task of designing your life against ignorant passions and leading your life by reason and God's concepts and God's authority that you know, if I I know if I get angry now, it's going to be righteous anger. I know that if if I um, uh, whatever the other passions may be, I know they're going to be placed in the right place because I have sought the time of everything. Okay. Next week is the last Bible study. It's on something. Um. <laughs> inordinate goods I'll explain it next week inordinate goods let's pray dear Lord we're grateful thank you again for showing us ways of this nature these habits a way of life that would be pleasing to you that we will have a part with your grace and with your Holy Spirit and be the fruit of your Holy Spirit designing a life that is thought out, that has been built by a renewed mind, with the will of God, your will, being the guidance. Thank you for the passions, we're grateful. We'd ask that we'd learn to use them as servants and benefits and enjoyments. In your Son's name, Amen.